Well, thanks again for being here this morning. This is week two of Advent, the season in the life of the church when we journey toward Christmas and the incarnation, the birth of Jesus. This sermon series is called Becoming Human. And what that means is we're talking about the people, the, the actual people who are kind of in orbit around the birth of Jesus. How did this change them? How did this affect them as people? What are some of the things that they noticed in their lives, or maybe they didn't notice in their lives, but that we can learn from as the miracle of Jesus unfolds and as they are drawn into his presence? Last week, we learned about Mary, Jesus's mother, and just the incredible miracle that she was called to steward and the humility that she demonstrated. This week, we're talking about another member of that same family. This is Mary's elderly brother-in-law, Zechariah. And here's the problem that he faces. And I think this is particularly resonant for those of us here on the east side. Zechariah is successful. He's made it. He's arrived. In his religious employment, he's doing great. And yet, there's an inner monologue for him of disappointment, of, of, of shame even. And we're going to try to understand what's that about and how does that pop out. And kind of the takeaway for us here at the top is our success can often get in the way of deepening our faith in Jesus Christ. And you may be sitting there thinking to yourself, like, man, don't talk to me about success. Like, I haven't felt successful in a long time. Like, I feel like I'm struggling in marriage. I'm struggling in my business. I appreciate all that. Your failure can also get in the way of the kind of things that God wants to lift up in your life. Your, your sense of being able to step into God's mission and ministry for you, it can be circumvented both by success and by failure. So wherever you're coming from this morning, this text is for you. It has certainly been for me this past week. So we're going to look at this through four different headings. If you're a note taker, you might want to write these down. The first heading is context. The second is a miracle declared. The third is an incredulous response. And the fourth is surprising grace. Context, miracle declared, incredulous response, and surprising grace. Let's talk about the context. And in order to do that, we've got to take a look at something really cool I found on the internet this week. This is a Lego temple. Isn't this great? Like somebody took the time to build a Lego temple. Who loves Legos? Like I, I love Legos growing up. This was just amazing to me. So it brought me great joy to kind of find it and put it in my slides so I could show you guys. So why are we talking about this? What we are introduced to at the beginning of Luke chapter one is a family, but it's not the family of Messiah. It is a family who is connected to ministry, to religious employment, if you will. The text tells us that Elizabeth of this couple, Elizabeth and Zechariah, she's from the house and line of Aaron. If you know your Old Testament, you know that the tribe of Aaron, they were the priests. They were the ones that were entrusted with ministering to and caring for God's people. Not to be outdone, Zechariah is also connected to a tribe of ministry. And so he's the one that is serving in this role, but it's almost like both of them grew up as pastor's kids. It's like both of them grew up as minister, or excuse me, missionary kids. And for those of you that may be familiar with that context, like I'm learning this context on the fly with my own children, it's a different ball of wax to grow up around the front lines of ministry. So Zechariah is descended from priests, and here's what his job was. You got to kind of know a little bit about Second Temple Judaism to understand this. So in 586 BCE, the original temple was destroyed, knocked down, ground into dust. It was a devastating experience for the people of Israel. Later on, it is rebuilt, and Herod, remember King Herod, the bad guy in the story of Advent, he actually scores major political points with the Israelites by rebuilding a temple for them. 
Now, this area here with the cool torches, right? Like the plastic flame torches, that is the part of the temple that all of us could walk into. Actually, about 30 years from this story, that's the part of the temple that Jesus is going to come into and turn over tables and cast people out. Why? Because it would be like if out in our lobby today that there were places to uh, buy groceries and there was an ATM and there was just all kind of stuff where you're going, why is this here? This is a place of worship. Like this doesn't fit. So this outer temple was where all the, quote, you know, normal, regular people were allowed to come. Now, the inner temple through this little doorway is where only priests were allowed to go. Priests at this time were only men. This is a patriarchal society. So men could enter in to this second level here. And this is where Zechariah would have done a lot of his ministry. This is where he would have seen other priests. Most scholars believe around this time, there are about 18,000 priests assigned to this temple. There was a huge cadre of people serving daily, worshiping daily, leading people in prayer. In the text today, you understand this, around the temple, people are gathered in prayer. They're called to prayer at that particular hour. And twice a day, one of the priests was tasked with going into this part of the temple to offer an incense sacrifice. Now, here's an interesting thing. This inner, inner building is the Holy of Holies. And the only person who could go in there was one priest, one time a year, who'd done a ton of stuff to sort of make himself worthy to enter into the Holy of Holies. Some people believe that that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. It's where the fragments of the original Ten Commandments were located. It was the place where God's presence dwelt. One time a year, one person could go in there. Now, what about the other 17,999 priests? What did they do? Well, like Zechariah, they had the opportunity to minister outside the Holy of Holies. Think about it like just standing outside the door of the Holy of Holies. And he's burning incense as a way to sacrifice and offer praise to God. And some scholars believe, this is so intriguing to me, this is the one and only time in his life that Zechariah would have been tasked with this duty. In other words, he'd served for years, he'd worked hard, he'd studied the Torah, he'd been present to the people, he'd been ministering to them and caring for them, and one shot is all he gets to enter into this sacred part of the temple and offer this incense, this sacrifice. It would be a little bit like if you or I were invited into the C-suite of the CEO of one of the biggest companies that we can think of. You're just kind of in this otherworldly experience. It's a heightened place of sensitivity. And so for Zechariah, there's one reason and one reason alone that he's truly considered worthy of entering into this place. And that's in verse six. This is describing both Zechariah and Elizabeth, which, by the way, for an ancient Near Eastern audience would have been scandalous to have paired the woman and the man in equal stature before God. But that's exactly what Luke does, because the gospel is not for one gender, just for everyone. It is for men and women. Both of them, Elizabeth and Zechariah, were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. This means that in an ancient Near Eastern Jewish context, these two folks were straight A students. Like they were just hitting the mark every single time in terms of their religious life. So good for them, right? They're successful. Not so fast. If you and I were ancient readers of this text, verse seven, if we read that, it would have made us drop the scroll. We would have been so shocked and stunned by verse seven. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren 
and both were getting on in years. Before I explain why this was a scandalous statement, let me just offer this kind of pastoral word. I know many of you, and I know your stories, and I know the stories of the churches that I've served in the past. Childlessness, infertility, losing pregnancies, these are real things that happen in the church. And the church is called to be this place where we can both celebrate the life of a child like we're doing for the Rosens and we're going to do for others, and a place where we can walk with people through the grief of losing a child or not being able to have children biologically. Both can exist in God's church. And I just want to mention that at the top because I want to recognize that this text is not an easy one for everyone to hear. It's important, it's true, but this sense of missing out, of not having all the pieces put together, of your family not feeling like it's complete, that's not a uniquely modern thing. That happened to Elizabeth and Zechariah. This was a shame and honor culture. This was a culture where if you didn't have children, I mean, this is just terrible. People would look at you and go, what's wrong with you? It was a sign interpreted in that culture of God has removed his favor from you. You hear echoes of this in Jesus's conversation with one of his disciples. You may remember this story. They come up to the blind man and the disciple asked Jesus, hey, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? He's done something wrong to be blind, obviously. Now, that would just be shocking to any of us if we walked into the hospital and we're being treated for something and the doctor says to you, hey, what, who did you sin against? Like, tell me what went wrong here so that you're here right now. Like, we, we would just be appalled by that. And yet that was normative in this time. So for Elizabeth and Zechariah, in one breath, to be exalted, to be hitting the mark in terms of their religious life, and then the very next breath to be identified as childless, like it would have fried all the circuits in your brain if you were reading this in the ancient Near East. But the human element is what I want us to focus on. So think about this. Elizabeth and Zechariah are outwardly successful. And inwardly, they're crying out. They're ashamed. They're embarrassed. They feel like they don't belong. They feel like their neighbors are looking sideways at them. They feel a quiet agony. Have you felt that? Have you felt this sense of, I'm doing fine over here, but over here, I'm just screaming? It happens to all of us. And Elizabeth and Zechariah are no exception. So this is why it's so important for us to understand the context. This is what's happening, I believe, in their family. This is the pain that they feel. Now let's talk about the miracle that happens. Remember Zechariah, he's in the temple. He's doing this one-time thing once in his entire life as a priest. He's getting the privilege of doing this. And then the angel has the gall to interrupt him, right? Listen to this. Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and fear overwhelmed him. We talked about this last week. If you are a mortal human being and you have an encounter with an immortal celestial angel, it's going to blow your mind. Like all of our circuits would be fried if we somehow encountered an angel. And it's so compassionate and pastoral of the angel to say what he says next. The angel says to him, do not be afraid. I, I know what you're experiencing. Do not be afraid. And he calls him by name. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Okay, press pause. What prayer? Have we heard Zechariah praying before now? The only people who've been mentioned as praying in the text today were the people gathered outside the temple. What, what prayer 
is he talking about? He goes on to explain, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will name him John. This is one of the reasons that I'm a Christian. This is one of the reasons that I believe it is so important to invite other people to consider the claims of Christ. Because we worship a God who understands intimately our needs, our brokenness, our sense of failure, our sense of anger even toward God, and who meets us in that. Other gods and goddesses that, that we could you know, see other people worshiping, they, they will strike you down. They would ignore your claims. They'd swatch you away with a, like a fly. Not our God, not Yahweh, not the God of the Bible. God is addressing the secret cries of Zechariah's heart. He is addressing the secret cries of Elizabeth's heart for a child, for wholeness, for their family. It is a miracle when God answers the cries of your heart and my heart before we even know what we're crying about. He knows your needs better than, he, than you know your needs. These are my brothers-in-law. So I'm over there on the right. This is my brother-in-law, Tyler. In the middle is my brother, other brother-in-law, Adam. Adam and his family uh, worshipped here before they moved to Gig Harbor. And this group of men are such a gift of provision to me by God. When uh, my wife and I first got married 13 years ago, I had no idea that I would need a geneticist and a financial advisor to become two of my closest friends. I would never have just picked these guys out of a lineup and said, we're going to be close. We're going to raise our kids together. We're going to go on adventures together. This is a picture of the three of us uh, trail running last summer, or excuse me, last spring. Never would have imagined that we'd be able to do all these amazing things together. And what I learn when I think about the friendship that God has given to me with my two brothers-in-law is this. There's a deep part of me that is broken around friendship with men, around acceptance and rejection. This goes way back into my childhood. I'm not going to go into detail around that, but what I will share is these two have been instrumental in God bringing healing, bringing a sense of fullness and wholeness and presence with others. They have been instrumental in kind of addressing this cry of my heart to develop deep, long-term friendships with other men. And I would never have imagined the way that God has let this play out. I would never have imagined all the twists and turns that we've had as a family. And I would never have imagined that God could heal so much of my own disappointment around friendship by giving me two great friends and my brothers-in-law. And I didn't ask. God simply met that need for me before I could name that need for myself. Can you relate, church? If you took a minute and thought about it, hasn't there been places where Jesus has said to you, you don't know that you need this, but I'm going to give this to you. You don't know that that job is toxic for you. I'm going to pull you out of that and I'm going to put you somewhere where you can thrive. You don't know, you don't know, you don't know, never in a pejorative way, only in a way that brings flourishing for you. Jesus does this. It is a miracle of following him. And Zechariah in this moment <laughs> doesn't recognize that this is what God is doing. And that's where we get to the next section, his incredulous response. I, I want to show you three different translations of this passage because they each kind of make it more clear what's actually happening here. So this is the nicest translation. This is the NRSV, the one that I like. Zechariah says to the angel, after the angel says, you're going to have a child, and he tells him how great his child's going to become, how he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Zechariah said to the angel, how will I know this is so? Like, I don't understand. Like, tell me a little bit more. Okay, that's kind of the gentlest one. 
The New Living Translation makes it have a little bit more bite to it. Zechariah said to the angel, how can I be sure this will happen? Are you sure this is going to happen? How can I be sure this is going to happen? And then the one that hits home, that has maybe just the thud that we all need to hear, is this from the message. Zechariah said to the angel, do you expect me to believe this? You see what I mean? You see how it just gets more cutting and more precise? Do you expect me to believe this? Think about the tone that you have to use to kind of say that in the way that most of us would say. Do you, do you expect me to believe this? What's the subtext? Do you think I'm stupid? Do you think that, I, 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 why would you even imply that this has happened? You're so shocked and stunned by the audacity of the idea being presented to you that you respond, do you expect me to believe this? Really? Angel? From God? Really? It's shocking. Contrast that with what we talked about last week with Mary's response to the angel. Remember, Mary encounters an angel early on in her journey, and the angel tells her about the miracle and about this child that she's going to give birth to. And how does she respond? She says, how can this be so since I'm a virgin? The difference is her heart. She's asking out of a heart of sincere, hey, help me understand, like, connect the dots for me. I'm with you, but like, lead me down the path where I can really make sense of this. Here's the difference, I think, between the way Zechariah responds and the way Mary responds, both to miraculous encounters with an angel. Mary responds with a heart that is humble. She has nothing to lose. She doesn't have a prominent position of religious authority. She doesn't have a company to worry about. She doesn't have family yet. She's literally a teenage girl who's marrying into a blue-collar family. She has nothing to kind of run interference between her sense of self-importance and what the God of the universe is calling her to do. She's an open vessel. Zechariah has everything to lose because he believes he's important because he believes he's arrived, because he knows, hey, this is my one time to get this right, angel. Could you do this another time? Like you're messing with me right now. I need to finish this thing. This is the only shot I got. Do you know what my friends are going to say about me if I don't get this right? He has his career to worry about. He has a sense of self-importance that runs real deep. And under the surface is this heartache, this heartbreak, this, man, my family isn't complete. What's happening? Church, how is your success undermining your faith? If you're really successful at your job, if everybody you work with just high fives you either virtually or in person, if there is this sense that you have arrived, be very careful. Be very, very careful because it is a short leap from the success that exists in your work or in your family or in your home or any of these other things. It's a short leap between that and thinking that you now reside in the place of Almighty God. You wouldn't say that to yourself. I wouldn't necessarily say that to myself, but we will act like that without caution. So be very careful about what your success does to your heart. And know this. The grace that is given to Zechariah is afforded to you and I as well. Where's the grace in this text? There's two different kinds of grace that are expressed here. One is to Zechariah and one is to the people of Israel. This is the last section where we're talking about surprising grace. Here's the grace. God is merciful to Zechariah. 
In the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, there are moments when people kind of scoff at the work of the Lord, when they are drawn into something and they say, no, God, I don't want to do that. And they're struck down. They lose their lives. And we don't have time to get into all of that today, but it is mercy to Zechariah that he is not struck down. His voice is struck down, but he gets a front row seat to the miracle of his wife, even in her advanced age, giving birth to John, a key figure in the revealing of Messiah. God is merciful to Zechariah. He gives him a front row seat to the miracle of the century. And eventually, later on in Luke chapter one, which I'd encourage you to read on your own, Zechariah's faith is rejuvenated and restored. Nine months of silence, his baby is born. They ask him, what's the baby's name? He writes the word, his name is John. He writes it out on a tablet. And then all of a sudden, his voice is restored. And one of the first things he does with his voice is lift up this incredible song of praise to God. The beginning of Luke's gospel is almost like a musical. There's just song after song after song. And this song of Zechariah is a beautiful song that I would encourage you to read on your own time. So grace comes both in the mercy that is extended to Zechariah and grace comes in the restoration of his faith. And there is grace for the people of Israel in this moment, for God's people, because they have fallen into a time of corruption and unfaithfulness. And this has been a time of silence. From the end of the Old Testament, Malachi, we believe, all the way to this moment has been 400 years of silence. 400 years. Like, that's hard for Americans to conceive because nothing is 400 years old around here, right? 400 years of silence. But God has kept his promises. And this moment, when the angel speaks to Zechariah, is the end of 400 years of silence. And it is the beginning of the outpouring of God's mercy through his son, Jesus. So what do we do with this? This surprising grace, this challenge about success. Let me offer just a couple of next steps before we turn to our breakout discussions. Zechariah is disappointed with God, but he is outwardly successful. And he's not alone, is he, church? He is disappointed with God, but outwardly everything looks fine. Would you consider the next time your disappointment, with whatever you may be disappointed with God about, the next time that breaks out, would you just sit with that? And what I mean by that is maybe you had a moment, this is how it manifests in my life, where you just snap at somebody, snap at the people in your life, you have a harsh word for someone, or you just kind of unload on them and your emotions are way bigger than the situation. The last time that happened to you, or the next time that happens to you, will you just kind of pause and ask the Lord, like, whew, what's happening there? What's, what's kicking around in my heart that just kind of erupted like that? Examine your heart before God. Ask for his grace. Confess. Seek his repentance. Here's the other encouragement I would offer you. Zechariah is doing the Lord's work with a broken heart. He is doing ministry. He is serving God's people, even though his heart is kind of a mess. If your heart is broken, if you are tired of the failures that you've experienced in your life, if you feel like God has been silent, if you feel like he has not met a prayer that you've been lifting up faithfully, you are still a servant of Jesus Christ and you can still be useful in his kingdom. Do not opt yourself out of ministry, of caring for others, of sacrificing for the poor, of raising your children in the ways of the Lord because you've been through a hard season. 
Now, that's not to say we don't need to attend to our difficulties. There are plenty of ways to be very unhealthy and serve in ministry, believe me. But don't opt yourself out of the good work that God desires to do in you and through you because you've had a hard couple of years or because COVID has been difficult. Guess what? It's been difficult for all of us. I've had a hard couple of years. I lost my dad two and a half years ago. I lost my grandma this summer. This has been a season of grief for me. But let me tell you, if I were to say, I'm sorry, guys, I can't do it. I would be missing out on so much of the joy and the abundance of God in my life. And I don't want that for any of you. If you haven't been, start praying, Lord, how would you have me serve you? in your church? How would, you have me, how would you have me serve you in my business, in my kid's school, in my marriage, with, with my neighbors? Don't let this idea of, I have a broken heart, so I can't do a lot. Don't let that keep you from the joy that God has for you. He has so much more for each of us, church. He had so much more for Zechariah, and Zechariah almost missed it. Friends, we have an opportunity now to sit with the good news of this text and to talk to one another. And so if you're new, I just want to introduce you to our breakout rooms, our breakout groups. We learned about this during our, our season when we were online only. And what we do is we just get into little groups, no more than five, turn your chairs around. You can lift the chairs up, move them around. And we just have a couple of discussion questions. If you're new, feel free to say like, hey, I'm new. I just want to listen. I just want to you know, kind of watch this week. That is totally fine. But uh, if you would like to step in, here are the discussion questions for your breakout groups. The first one is a really important theological question. Share your name and your approach to getting a Christmas tree. Are you all about the real thing? Are you, have you given in and you're going artificial? Or are you like, forget it, I'm over trees, okay? That's the first question. Second question is, how might your success, work, family, parenting, how might it be a challenge to your faith in Jesus Christ? How might reading your own press and agreeing that you're a really, really great leader and you're a great businesswoman and you're a great teacher, how might that be limiting what God is doing in your life? And similarly, if you got a narrative of failure right now, stick failure in that spot where it says success. We're going to take time and turn our attention to our breakout rooms. We're going to have about seven minutes to talk to each other. It's not as long this week as we have communion. So I'll pray for you, and then I'll invite you to talk to one another. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this word. May everything that was said that is of you resonate and sink into our lives. Anything that is of you that, or anything that is of me, would you just make it be quickly forgotten? Bless us now as we talk to one another, as we grow in fellowship together. Give us courage. Give us listening ears. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.